Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Caught up earlier today with Spencer Cole. He's the EVP for North America for Vox Royalty. We talked to him about their plans post their 16.85 million raise. They've got 12 LOIs uh, currently outstanding. And we talked to them about when they intend to close them, if indeed they can close them. Uh, great conversation, great romp through the management team's relevant experience, um, you know, their cash and cash position, how they like to differentiate themselves from the opposition and what their plans are for the rest of this year. If you want our thoughts and opinions on this company, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There are commentaries from experts from around the world on a variety of companies, commodities, and royalties. Uh, we've got training courses on there to help you with your indulgence process. We do summaries of interviews, in fact, all of our interviews, just to save you some time because we know you are busy. And more importantly, if you want to join a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe and friendly environment, free from judgment, trolling and abuse, go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. I think you'll really like it. Spencer, how are you, sir? Very well, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there, hanging in there, if I'm honest. I follow following my uh, COVID jab this week, but I'm okay. I'm not going to complain about it. Um, so, where, so where, where are you uh, speaking to us from? I'm in uh, in rainy Toronto. Lovely. So just lovely. Yeah, it's start, starting to get a bit warmer, and, and patios have just opened up, so it's not all gloomy here, but. Uh, we're surviving. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, look, thanks for joining us. Um, we're going to hear the Vox Royalty story from you this time. We've actually interviewed one of your um, colleagues, um, Kyle Floyd, who is, what, what is he? Is he CEO? CEO, CEO and chairman. And chairman. What are you? Um, Executive Vice President for North America. Righty-ho. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to hear your version of the story as well today. Um, look, why don't you kick off, give everyone a one-minute overview, just to remind people who perhaps know you or don't know you, you know, what it is that you are, and I'll, I'll take it from there. Sure. Absolutely. So Vox Royalty uh, has been around for seven years, but we've only been listed for nine months. Uh, Vox is a precious metal-focused, high-growth uh, royalty company focused solely on the acquisition of, of existing royalties, uh, so not originating new royalties, uh, where over the last tw uh, two years, we've led the industry in growth. Um, we've completed 19 separate royalty transactions and our portfolio of 47 royalties is heavily weighted towards Australia, where we are the second largest holder of hard rock royalties, second only to Franco Nevada. Is your accent a clear as to why you focus on Australia or are there better reasons than that? <laughs> yeah, apologies to the listeners for my unfortunate Australian accent. Um, so three out of our four key management team members are Australian citizens, uh, for better or worse. Um, but also, I think, you know, we're, we're heavily skewed towards Australia just because we view Australia and, and by extension, Western Australia as one of the best gold mining jurisdictions on the planet. And so we've been successful in developing a first mover advantage, particularly in, in Western Australia. Right. And do you think you've got the business model right? Because when we've been interviewing various royalty companies over the past couple of weeks, um, they've all got slight kinks and uh, differences to them. They like to think they're all unique. I mean, what's so special about your model? Sure. So I think one thing that really differentiates us from the competition is um, over the last 10 years, we've developed what we believe is the world's largest proprietary royalty database, uh, which is approaching uh, 8,000 uh, unique mining, uh, hard rock mining royalties. And so we use that, that intellectual property 
um, to, I guess, high grade, uh, a really attractive and accretive um, opportunity set for our shareholders. Um, and the overwhelming majority of, of opportunities that we source through that database and our, our deal sourcing networks are deals that we call uh, bilateral deals. So just us and the royalty seller without any, any brokers or investment bankers involved in those deals. So I think that intellectual property um, and also augmented by our technical team, because our management team is comprised of mining engineers and geologists, makes us quite a, a differentiated royalty company. Okay, well, yeah, I want to talk about the team in a second, but let's just stick with the database here. So you've got 8,000 bilateral royalties. So is that, is that the right phrase? So we're, by the end of this year, we'll have over 8,000 in the database. Um, right. They are individual royalties, like third-party royalties that, um, that could be transacted upon. Right. Are you trying to say that no one else knows about these or they're out there, but you've kind of aggregated them and put them in one place? It, um, we're certainly not saying that our competitors are blind to all 8,000 of those. Um, you know, they may have visibility around a subset of that. But, you know, what we're very confident on um, is that, you know, no one has the full extent of, of that database. And, and also, Matt, I mean, for us, the proof in, in that the size and quality of that database is that we consistently find ourselves as the only buyer at the negotiating table um, with, with royalty sellers. I mean, isn't it better to have people with relationships with, with companies or access to networks? That seems to be what I've been hearing the last week or so. Yeah, I, th I think it depends on what your business model is. There are other royalty companies that focus on project financing and originating new royalties. That's not our model. Um, we, we've back-tested over 600 royalty deals that have cleared the market over the past 40 years. And what that benchmarking and back-testing has consistently shown is that the greatest alpha for shareholders is in acquiring existing royalties. There's a natural adverse selection bias when you're writing new royalties over projects, typically because that you know, they've tapped out on equity and debt capacity. So based on that back testing and our own you know, transactional experience within our management team, because we've been buying and selling royalties for the last 10 years, um, that's why we're firmly focused on, on existing royalties. And in the existing royalty uh, game, I think the relationships are less focused on the mining companies or you know, speaking to management teams of different listed operators. And it's more focused on can you find that prospector out in the bush near, you know, Kalgoorlie or can you find that doctor who holds an interesting royalty in a, a remote village in West Africa? Those are the relationships that we invest in. Right. Okay. You've recently raised 16.85 million bucks. Not sure the market liked that for some reason. You're, you're, you've gone from three bucks down to 262. What's your take on that? Yeah, I guess, you know, as with any capital raising, um, there's obviously some investors that that weren't uh, that weren't thrilled about about us going back to market. Um, you know, we've only been listed for for nine months, but I think, as I mentioned, you know, we've led the industry in terms of acquisition growth, uh, and it's not just a volume game. We've been putting up deals at, at really compelling prices. So, um, you know, if you look through some of the marketing materials that we shared as part of this this financing, it's funding you know a really attractive. Uh, portfolio of bilateral deals that we've locked in under LOI. So I think some investors may be disappointed we're tapping the market so soon after going public. But for those that um, go through our marketing materials and see the deals that we have locked in, that this financing will be funding, 
you know, I think there is a huge amount of value that's going to be unlocked through this financing. So we, we, we certainly hope that this is just a short-term uh, overreaction. Okay, so you've, you talked there about what you're going to do with it. You've got 12 LOIs. I mean, LOIs, they, they're, they're not binding, are they? they? They don't mean anything really, do they? Yeah. Uh, so historically, you know, our conversion rate of executing and completing on LOIs is extremely high. Um, you know, we'll, we, we typically don't paper up any deal until, you know, we have some sort of verbal alignment and verbal agreement from the counterparty. So, yes, there's always confirmatory DD that, that could, could derail a certain deal. But historically, we've completed, you know, the overwhelming majority of, of deals we had under LOI. Right. But they all have different terms attached to them. So, but I am right. There's nothing binding in there. It's just you have a expectation to be able to close them. Is that, is that right? Yes, there are aspects to our, our standard LOIs that, that are binding insofar as, I guess, exclusivity and, and confidentiality. So, you know, when we work with any royalty seller, there's an, there's an agreement, in, you know, both implicitly and in writing that we're, we're both working together in good faith exclusively. And, you know, if one party, you know, breaches that or if the seller decides to try and shop the deal around once they've executed the LOI, yeah, then there are, you know, I guess financial repercussions for that. Yeah. Okay. So, but you, you're not counting on any of those. There, there's clearly no implied value of the LOIs being uh, try, trying to be attributed towards the company as it stands today. None. No. No. We haven't completed those deals and haven't announced right. them. Like Got we it. we expect to to we 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 hope to announce some of them in the next couple of weeks. So I guess then the market will be able to sort of assess uh, the quality of those deals. I only ask because we spoke to one company which was in the same position on one asset and they were claiming the revenue on an asset they hadn't yet oh. acquired. <laughs> oh, no, I just that's... wanted to be really clear with you. No, no, no. And until we fully own an asset and we complete on a deal, you know, fully papered up, you know, it's 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 the seller's asset. It remains the seller's asset. So Okay. So so you want to get into um, the company proper. I'm gonna start with the management team. How many royalties have you transacted on as as a team? So our portfolio is 47 royalties. Um, that's sort of the Vox portfolio. Um, so that's what we've built as Vox. Um, prior to that, uh, in our prior lives, you know, over the last 10 years, management collectively has been involved in over 1.5 billion in royalty transactions, either on the principal side, on the, the sell side, advisory side, um, or you know, somewhere in between. So in total, total deal number that we royalty deals we've been involved in would be in excess of 50 as a team. Right. Using a, a similar type of royalty structure as you've got now in terms of being able to negotiate similar royalties to the, to the model you're employing today. Yeah, that's 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 royalty deals that we've collectively worked on specifically transacting on you know hard rock mining royalties. Okay. So, you so know exactly what, what our, our business model is today. Great. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you know what you're doing in terms of the paperwork. Okay. Technically, again, who on the team technically is responsible for assessing the types of deals? Because again, it can be easy to do the paperwork on deals, but they may not amount to anything economically. So who in the team technically assesses these things? Absolutely. So uh, our team, uh, so Simon Cooper, who's uh, our head of business development, he's both a mining engineer and a geologist. Um, Rian Esterhuizen, uh, who leads our Australian business out of Perth, uh, he's a, a renowned exploration geologist. Uh, who's worked with some of the who's who of large cap mining companies. Uh, myself, I'm, I'm a mining engineer and reformed investment banker. Um, and Kyle, 
uh, he, he's, he had a brief stint at Colorado School of Mines, but we probably wouldn't put him into the, the fully technical bucket. Right. Okay. And again, I'm just trying to understand your, cap- your ability to create value for shareholders. I get you've done a lot of deals, but can you sort of talk to us about where you have created value in the past um, for shareholders? Sure. So if you look at our portfolio of 47 royalties, Matt, um, we've deployed about $25 million to create this, you know, $100 million, um, $100 million uh, company. So I guess that's sort of one, you know, objective you know, value creation metric. Um, I think the other the other way to look at it is, I guess, in terms of a, a rate of return um, you know, on the portfolio that we have today, brokers have us, you know, have brokers have our top line revenues going from two to six to eight million dollars um, sequentially um, uh, based on the, the forty seven royalties that we have today. So I guess if you if you work you know if you work out work through that revenue line on you know twenty five million dollars deployed. Um, you know that gives you a sense for for roughly you know what what type of value is being created as we allocate capital. Right. I mean, you sort of answered this previously because we, we've talked about the database, but I'm just trying to understand what you know how you are differentiated or what your competitive advantage is with all of these royalty companies which are coming out of the woodwork. Okay, so there's lots of new royalty companies coming out, and we've interviewed a few, and some, you know even some that we haven't that are of a certain size of a certain level of expertise and experience, um, you're still going to have to compete against them in terms of the white noise. So are you relying entirely on the database to differentiate you? No, absolutely not. I mean, the database isn't a, a sausage factory that just churns out deals. Um, you know, the database is obviously is a, a living, breathing thing that is expanding by the day, but um, it still needs, you know, it still needs, I guess, to be used in the right way. And, you know, knowing where a deal sits and, and knowing how much, you know, what the royalty rate is and, you know, how much of the ore body it covers is one one aspect to getting a deal done. There's a huge amount of softer aspects in terms of, you know, actually how do you negotiate and get the deals done, you know, particularly with a very disparate set of counterparties. We've bought royalties from prospectors out in the bush, um, to te- technology companies, um, and then, you know, major mining and commodity trading companies as well. So, some of the softer sides of how you actually get deals done. Um, and then a, a lesser known part is actually, how do you actually get in front of the royalty holder? Um, particularly when you're dealing with say, a family office in Latin America, or you know, a doctor in, in West Africa. Um, you know, a lot of these, these individuals and sell up, selling groups, you, know, you can't just pick up the, uh, you know, the, the, the white yellow pages or equivalent. Um, so you need to have agents in country to be able to actually, you know, contact these groups. So that's another part of, of Vox is, I guess, you know, our in-country deal sourcing networks that that help us actually get these deals done. Right. Okay. So if I look at, you've told us how, how many, you've got 40, 47 uh, royalties. Um, that's all well and good, but the, the kind of name of the game here is making money. So, you know, you need cash sure. producing assets as quickly as possible. So how many of these assets of yours are materially advanced? And by materially advanced is, will be you producing cash for you in the next couple of years? Sure. Uh, and I, I think that's a, the right question to ask because it's certainly not a numbers game. Um, so we went public with one producing asset um, and we finished last year with four production stage assets. Um, we have a few additional royalties coming on stream this year. So we expect to, to finish this year closer to seven or eight 
um, producing assets. Um, there's an outside chance we could finish it closer to 10 based on some acquisitions. Um, but when we look at our portfolio, there's approximately 20 royalties that have some level of engineering work that's been completed on them such that, you know, we can model the discount cash flow profile of those assets. So that's broad, broad way of, of saying, you know, we've got line of sight around potential cash flows from about 20 assets, but near term, we expect that, you know, about 10 of them uh, have strong potential to be in production. Right. So, so we're talking about, if it's North America, we're talking about 43101s in Australia, where most of your assets are, or most of the royalties are, joke uh, compliant resource numbers are needed. And then the company needs to give you a good indication of how quickly they can move forward, that they've got the capital, that they've got the ambition to do it within that period of time. How do you, how do you gauge that? Because not all mining companies are, uh, you know, completely, you know, honest about the actuality of a situation, things slip and so forth. So how do you forecast? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, and it, as you as you know, from your prior dealings, you know, this valuation is more of an art than a science. Um, so, you know, I think we we try to ensure that we never fall in love with assets. Um, and we have very robust debate and heated debate within our management team about how to allocate capital to different potential deals. I think ultimately we look we look at assets that you know that have been materially de-risked in terms of the usual pitfalls. You know, is the, the metallurgy uh, has the met work been done on a representative sample of the ore body? Um, uh, you know, ha, what has there been a sufficient amount of drilling done? Um, you know, what is the ore body, ore, ore body like uh, the actual geometry? Uh, can this readily be mined? Uh, and then I guess from a corporate perspective. Has this operating team that, that controls the asset been there, done that before? Can they actually raise the financing to get this project up and running? Because one, one thing we see consistently in the industry, in the royalty industry, is people buying uh, royalties over large ore bodies that frankly are a little bit sleepy. So the original feasibility study might have been done 20 years ago, which you know should be quite telling that that project's not moving ahead in a hurry. So I guess we look through both the technical aspects and the actual corporate or operator aspects of, of any royalty asset and focus on, on royalties that have strong and de-risked near-term catalysts that will move move the asset forward to, to cash flow for our shareholders. Right. Okay. So again, what you've got to try and do is help me understand the number of gold equivalent answers that you've got in terms of resources, reserves, you know, answers in the ground where you directly have a royalty over because you know, I'm assuming that the royalties may not apply to the entire uh, resource number uh, that the company puts out. So again, how do you go about gauging that? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good question, Matt. Um, so the majority of our Australian royalties cover uh, the entirety of the ore bodies. Um, so I think that's just by by way of how the royalties have been created. Typically, it's 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 a, a junior explorer has made a discovery and taken it to say pre feasibility stage and then sold the entirety of the project onto a larger developer or producer. Um, some of our North American royalties only cover part of, of the ore bodies, so you know when we report re resource estimates or or when we disclose new deals, we're very clear to say this only covers part of this ore body. You know, for us, it's not a you know headline catching uh, game. So going back to your question, um, you know, across our, our portfolio, you know, we have on a gold equivalent uh, ounce basis, we have, you know, royalties that are linked to over 10 million ounces of gold. 
Um, and you know, that's when I say linked to, to that, that gold equivalent resource, I mean, specifically royalty covered, um, resource, not, you know, it's a 2 million ounce resource and then we've got a, a tiny fraction in the corner. So, okay. but I think the only nuance I would, I'd, I'd say to your question is we're focused on cash on cash returns for our investors, not on land banking, large ore bodies and large royalties. Okay, so with, but with that number, does that is that within the next two years that number, or is that the entire kind of royalty package? So that, that's the entire sort of mineralization that is covered by a royalty claim or, or tenement. So what can we expect so, to see in the next again the next couple of years? Just just give us an answer, dollars, I and mean, however you want to give it. Yeah, so so um, the the street has us going from two to six to eight million dollars in top line revenue, and so when you work out that on a gold equivalent ounce production basis, you know broadly speaking, it goes from about uh, one one thousand ounces to about three, or call it three or four thousand gold equivalent ounces, and then up towards about five, um, and that's just based on what's in the portfolio today. Okay, and these all uh, private companies, sorry, all public companies, or private? Are there any private companies in there? Uh, the, out of our forty-seven, there's about I think about five or six private companies, but they're they're skewed skewed more towards our earlier stage properties. So the overwhelming majority of our properties are held by large listed uh, uh, operators. Okay, the only reason I ask is obviously it makes it hard for you and anyone else to actually get a or gauge on on the numbers because it's not public. Um, which kind of goes to the next question, which is in terms of these uh, royalties being materially advanced. I mean, again, do you know how many meters are being drilled in the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in, in the last quarter alone, we had about thirty-four thousand meters of partner-funded drilling, specifically on our royalty claims. So, not you know, I can give you examples where you know one of our projects, Bulong, uh, the operator has drilled. 60,000 meters in the last six months. But of that, you know, approximately, you know, a quarter of that is on our royalty claims. So when I say 34,000 plus meters of drilling, that's specifically on royalty linked um, uh, claims. Um, so, you know, we're at an annualized rate uh, going forward of about 120, 130,000 meters of partner funded drilling on our specific royalty claims. Right. Okay. I, I just think I think that's really important to understand. I'm, I'm impressed, you know, the numbers. Um, quite frankly, and um, because we we keep saying this is about cash and cash flow, and I get you you talk about cash and cash returns for investors, which which is all admirable, but you got to deliver it, right? So, and and you know, some of the yeah, conversations sure. I've had this week have me guessing somewhat. So, can you give me an idea of what your cash flow is like now? I know you just raised some money, but what's your cash flow like uh, now? And what's that kind of cash? profile, growth profile look like going forward? Yeah, sure. So I think um, that was one criticism when we when we went public, Matt, was that, hey, you've only got one producing asset um, and, you know, this, you, your cash flow profile is fairly anemic. Um, so part of that is because we consistently find the deepest value uh, when we acquire royalties that are, call it three months to 24 months out of, out of uh, for, from first production. So, We've naturally built a portfolio that is at this sort of the start of a hockey stick in terms of the number of assets that are coming online and, and the associated cash flows that come from that. So later this year, we have two key operations that are expected to come into production. Um, next quarter, it's the Segilola gold mine in Nigeria that we have a royalty over. And then Q4, um, the Bulong gold royalty in Western Australia um, is expected to commence uh, production. So those 
those two assets coming on stream um, will, will make us finish the year at, you know, call it about two to $3 million in annualized revenue rates. Um, that, that's so based on those two incremental operations. And then as we look ahead to, to um, 20, uh, the following year, um, we've got a number of other op operations that we expect have strong potential to come on stream over that year, which you know, would, would bridge you closer towards you know, analyst expectations around that sort of five or six uh, million. Is any of this falling off? Because again, we, I'm interested in the sort of duration of this cash flow because you know, we, we, we talked to companies this week who've got very short life of mine projects, which they've got royalties on two, three years type of things, which they have an mm -hmm. expectation, which will always be two or three years, but that isn't always the case. So again, how yeah. what's that profile look like for you? Yeah, sure. So full disclosure, you know, we, we've got a, a combination of, of short life and long life assets uh, in our portfolio. So, you know, we've got seven assets in our portfolio that have 10 plus year um, mine lives. Um, and, you know, and a number of those, you know, we expect to, to come into production over the next few years. So the, if you look at our current cash flow, so we've got an iron ore royalty, um, coolie knobbing. That's, uh, you know, the current reserve life on that is about seven years. Resource life is closer to about 15 years. Um, and then if you look at, at uh, some of our other producing assets, you know, they're in that sort of call it five to eight year mine life. Um, but I think where the huge, the real talk comes for investors in terms of what's in our, the Vox portfolio is there's a number of opera, other operations that are feasibility stage or um, currently being mined, but they're transitioning onto the royalty areas um, that, that will extend that weighted average mine life, you know, into the sort of 10 to 15 year uh, uh, bracket. I mean, so this might be a bit, a bit too hard to answer, but what does it? What does the cash flow look like? You know, on a reserves only basis versus resource. Is that something you guys calculate? Yeah, I mean, so it would probably be on a reserves only basis. It would probably be, you know, closer to call it five to eight years. Um, right. But frankly, you know, I think that's if you look at the Franco Nevadas of the world and the, you know the, the the grandfathers of the industry. That's frankly not. Uh, a realistic metric that you know that that has played out for any royalty company. So, with the size of the land packages where we have royalties over, you know, like if you take our Bowden Silver project in New South Wales, that just in the last week they applied for their mining leases. So moving moving towards construction, um, you know that that total land package is approximately a thousand square kilometres. So to assume that you know the mine life on that asset is sixteen years, but there's potential further beyond that 16 years because just the sheer size of the land package. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, not sure if reserve life is the, the best way to value royalty companies. Right, right, okay. And again, again, for people perhaps watching uh, this for the first time, sorry, a royalty interview for the first time, perhaps not considered royalties before, um, the difference between organic growth and M&A is what? So organic growth, our investors get for free. So when we look at when we look at uh, every month, we're gifted with a huge amount of, of positive news flow on our forty-seven royalty assets from our forty operating partners. So whether that's um, you know one hundred and thirty thousand meters of drilling, or if that's exploration stage royalties that have feasibility studies coming out, where you can point to the, the cash flow potential. Um, you know we've got a number of we've got three royalty assets that we each bought for 
between $50,000 and $100,000 that in the next six months we'll be releasing um, engineering studies. So straight away we'll be able to, to, to point to, you know, we paid fifty dollars or $100,000 for these exploration stage royalties, but they've now matured into development and, you know, the potential revenue profile could be 10, 20, 30x, you know, what we've essentially paid up, up front. So um, organic, new, organic sort of growth is all that free, uh, it's like a wine cellar. You know, it's the wine cellar you own today that just appreciates in value as the operators spend money developing the projects and, and obviously expanding production stage royalties that continue to expand production. Um, and then acquisition growth is obviously the more capital intensive growth where we're actively working out, you know, our database and our deal sourcing networks to acquire, you know, accretive and, and, and a high rate of return uh, incremental royalties to bring into our portfolio of 47 royalties. Right, so the organic component is is important to you and, and, and other royalty companies because it's cheaper, so not so well, much, up, and it's, you know, it's not so much up, up front. Well, yeah, de minimis, de minimis uh, number attributed to it. What's your track record and experience and how on earth do you influence companies to behave a certain way just because you've got a royalty over them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to be perfectly brutally honest with you, Matt, um, being a royalty holder, and I think most honest royalty company executives will tell you this, when you're a royalty holder, your ability to influence the operator is pretty close to zero. Um, all you need to do to be successful as a royalty holder is, you know, when you're securing or acquiring the royalty up front, you just need to be damn sure that the royalty you're buying, buying because it's essentially just a piece of paper, is going to be valid and recognised by the operator. Um, so we have really constructive dialogue with a number of our operating partners, um, you know, when they give us up-to-date uh, drilling information and, and guidance around when certain assets are going to be, you know, advanced um, or in, in, in the case of the uh, producing assets, how production's evolving. Um, but the unfortunate reality is we're buying a, a derivative investment linked to their operation. You know, we, we are not the operator influencing the, the operation. Right. Again, why this interests me from what I've been hearing over the past few weeks, what I've learned over the past few weeks from research is, you know, how can you or what point do you start to include the organic numbers into your numbers? Do you need, I know you said you get sort of some kind of line of sight, but you have no influence or control. They can change in a minute's, moment's notice. Um, so how far out do you look? And it's in the context of a statement I heard from a royalty CEO who was claiming uh, revenue for something which doesn't even, in the next two years, which doesn't even have a resource, which intrigued me. So being in the head frame, in the shadow, next door to neurology, all of that, I personally don't put any value on, but some royalty companies do. How, how do you guys get mm. away with that? Yeah, look, I, I think um, that's, uh, that's not an interpretation or, or a position that we would take, you know, we typically uh, aim to buy royalties on, on projects that have an existing resource estimate on them. So, um, you know, they might have a historical resource or, or, or a current JORC or, you know, NI43-101 um, resource on them. Um, and then, you know, for internal modeling purposes, when we're doing due diligence, we might, you know, I guess, build out our own, our own operating assumptions to say, what could this potential operation look like? Um, but you know, we'll never provide guidance or release to the market cash flow forecasts unless there are hard engineering studies that sit behind that. 
Um, the only nuance to that, I would say, Matt, is that you know ultimately um, our role for our investors is to to seek out and capture the best risk-adjusted returns um, through mining royalty investments, and so we we will take positions on earlier stage projects where we see that there's low execution risk. So, for example. And three weeks ago, we announced a deal to acquire three early stage gold royalties in Western Australia. Tiny deal compared to our competitors, it's a $300,000 deal. But what we really liked about those three gold projects was each of the three actively being drilled. One of them has a resource of about 100,000 ounces of gold on it. And importantly, from an execution risk perspective and from a future cash flow perspective, each of those three assets are within trucking distance of a third party processing mill. So for our investors, you know, they're getting a very cheap um, sort of lottery ticket, for, for lack of a better word, um, on a project that is substantively de-risked because it, it could be a potential source of, of gold ore for an adjacent processing mill. So we won't forecast those cash flows publicly, but certainly internally, you know, we're trying to maximise those, those risk-adjusted returns for our shareholders. So what does your organic profile look like for the next 12 months then? Um, so... If I start, if I'll, I'll break it into three components: producing, development, and um, and exploration. So on the production front, um, we expect organically to increase uh, uh, from four producing assets to six, with some surprise to the upside potential above six, um, but six that we can definitively point to. Um, and then from a development perspective. As I mentioned, we've got three we've got three exploration stage royalties that are just about to release feasibility studies and PEAs in the next six months. So they'll mature into that um, development bucket. And then also, you know, um, from an exploration stage perspective, we sh we expect to be at sort of call it 120, 130,000 meters worth of partner funded drilling on our exploration properties with a number of, of resource updates and maiden resource estimates expected to be released on those exploration properties this year. So each month investors should expect just a huge amount of free organic news flow across each of those three buckets of, of royalty assets. Okay, interesting, interesting. What do you think the, um, if you look at organic versus transactional growth for this year, what's it looking like? Yeah, so what we announced um, to the market as part of our, our financing last week was that you know, we have a number of deals under under LOI. Um, so we're working through those at the moment to, towards completion. So I think investors can expect us uh, to continue to make sensible acquisitions and, and at disciplined prices. So, you know, uh, we would expect to be announcing, you know, a handful of deals over the coming months um, and, you know, subject to, subject to what comes down the pipeline um, because at any given time we, you know, we have call it 20 to 40 different term sheets out on different assets in the market. So we would expect that the remainder of this year to be a very strong uh, acquisition uh, growth year as well. But, you know, focusing on, on, on value rather than just volume. Okay. Value, accretive, all of, yeah, there's so many sort of buzzwords that you guys use. I'm not quite sure what they mean. So what, what does value or accretive mean to you? your organization what does good yeah, look no, like that, what's good look like that's a good question matt because we recently we've seen the word accretive thrown around like confetti oh yeah uh, in in the junior end of our industry um i think an, an accretive deal for us is really um a deal that that 
that has a, a above average or meaningful rate of return on, on all key sort of metrics. So it adds value on a net asset value perspective. So if we're trading at 0.9 times NAV and if we're acquiring an asset for 0.4 or 0.5 times, that's adding value on, on a net asset value basis. And then from a cash flow basis, um, you know, where we're obviously, you know, the rate of return we're getting based on our cash outlay. So for example, we bought a royalty over part of the Higginsville mine last year, uh, in May of last year, we paid 650,000 for that royalty. That royalty is now generating two to 300,000 per annum. So, you know, the cash return on that cash investment, um, that rate of return is accretive um, relative to our cost of capital. Um, and, and, and then I guess, you know, you can look at all other multiples such as cash flow multiples um, where we're paying less per unit of cash flow relative to what we're trading in the market. So we would typically look at those three metrics in terms of what is truly accretive being net asset value, um, we're paying less than, than we're trading at, um, cash flow multiple, same, same story, and then cash on cash return or return on investment. That's, you know, that rate of return is, is you know, well in excess of our cost of capital. So that's what accretion means um, for us at Fox. See, the, the interesting thing in your sector is because you guys seem to get extraordinary multiples compared to miners, um, it, it feels like some royalty companies just do deals just for the scale because they know they're going to get a 15, 20 times uplift. Um, because it's just about doing deals. The market gives them credit for it, whether the deal's expensive, whether it's going to make them money, because it all gets rolled into one. It just gets packaged into one big bundle, and hopefully no one lifts up the skirt and has a look. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think there are a number of, of newer royalty companies that are trying to display the multiple game. Um, and if, you're only, if your only competitive advantage, so to speak, is, you know, a... a a multiple that the market is ascribing to your 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 equity value, um, and your only truly you know differentiated uh, lever is a lower cost of capital. Um, you know I think that's a pretty shaky foundation to be building any company on, and I think long term you know that's probably not going to be a defensible competitive advantage that you can really you know sell to your shareholders and continue to to deliver our performance. I think you know. We've been around for seven years. We saw the market was going to get um, more and more competitive. So the way we built our company, um, you know, whether that's our intellectual property of over seven thousand royalties, our technical management team, um, our deal sourcing networks in obscure countries, we built all of this to be defensible, to be differentiated, and, and to be competitive in three, five, ten years' time. So. We don't need to trade on a, you know, a Franco Nevada two times or three times NAV multiple to add value to our shareholders. We just need to continue finding attractive royalties and, and acquiring them at disciplined prices you know, with the right technical diligence, and that will consistently create value for our shareholders. So what are you trading at versus your cash flow? Um, so we're trading at between 0.8 and 0.9 times uh, net asset value. Um, obviously, the, the pullback post our financing um, probably puts us towards that lower end of the range. But um, you know, we, we would expect that you know certainly how we, we continue to price deals that we can continue adding value, acquiring new royalties, you know, at, at, at prices below that where we're trading. Okay, so you, you think your model is, is sustainable? 
you believe that you are, do you think you're doing it better than others? Look, I mean, we, we try and stay humble, um, uh, Matt, and, you know, we think aspects of our business really are first rate and, and leading the industry. And, and I think our approach to using sort of a big data style um, disruptive model to actually, you know, looking at, you know, finding deals that others aren't aware of, whether it's buying a royalty from a telecommunications company or buying a gold royalty from a hearing aid company, you know, things like this, you know, leveraging intellectual property are very unique in our industry um, and also back testing over 600 deals. Like there's not many people, are, you know, we, we encounter are that obsessive about focusing on historical data and, and using that to, you know, project returns going forward. Um, so I'd say some of, some of those aspects are, you know, we would believe, you know, cutting edge and, and leading the industry. Um, but we, like any new, uh, new company to the public markets, we've got a lot to grow on and a lot to, to learn, particularly in terms of our capital markets program. Right. And given where you are today, you're sort of at the upper end of the small guys, right? You're 8,500 million bucks kind of market cap, which, 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 which is fine. But for us poor investors to look at this, you know, large group of young royalty companies, the wannabes, you know, you, you, you told us how you differentiate yourselves, but what can we expect from you in terms of timing? What's going to be that move that gets you to the next step, which gets you to be, you know, I look at people like a Mavericks, right? They're, they're kind of of a size now. They've been around, they've done a lot of things right. Um, but, you know, there's less leverage up there. How do you get there? Yeah, I think um, it's a question we ask ourselves, you know, every week uh, as, as management, Matt. Um, you know, I think in terms of uh, show, proving our business model to the market, I think one huge catalyst um, over the course of this year is, is you know, us demonstrating the cash flow um, embedded within our royalty portfolio. Uh, it's, you know, anyone can, can, can be a, a, a wizard on Microsoft Excel and project, you know, astronomical returns. And they uh, do. On royalties. And they do. And, and they do. They do. But, um, you know, ultimately, we're, we, you know, we're, for us to be able to, to re-rate and to, to show the market how much value we're, we're creating with each royalty deal that we do, I think this year is a really pivotal year for us as, as that cash flow really starts to hit the bottom line and as the revenue really starts to, to come through from incremental royalties moving into production. So that's something that we're very excited about and excited to you know, demonstrate that uplift to our investors. Right. Are you going to build this thing out or are you looking to be taken out? <laughs> we, I mean, we serve at, the, at the, the, the value of our shareholders and look, management holds about 15% of the company. Uh, I've got four of my siblings are, uh, are Vox shareholders and I can assure you they are the, the noisiest of, of, of noisy, uh, in a positive way, shareholders. So, um, you know, if, if, someone, if someone came along with, a, with a, you know, an offer that, that we felt presented you know, fair value for our shareholders, we would obviously have to consider it. Um, but, you know, we see a very clear path to us, you know, continuing to grow in a very disciplined fashion. Um, and, you know, in, in two, three years time, when, you know, the portfolio is really spitting out a huge amount of cash flow, and, you know, either we continue allocating that to, you know, value, value accretive deals, or we just start becoming a big dividend payer. So, you know, we see a number of different pathways forward. 
um, each of them will be assessed against each other in, in the context of, you know, shareholder value. Beautiful. Spencer, I appreciate your time. I'm just conscious probably gone on a little bit longer than I thought we would. Um, sure. I loved it. Um, some great answers in there. Um, look, stay in touch as, as you get on with this, getting working way through these LOIs. I'm intrigued to see what you, you can do there. Um, and um, you know, I'll definitely pick the phone up when you call. Thanks, Matt, for your time today. Uh, I just want to leave you with these three thoughts about Vox Royalty Corp. One, uh, we are the fastest growing royalty company in the industry. We've done over 19 uh, deals in the last two years alone. Two, we've we built a, a truly unique and disruptive royalty company, um, which is which is centered around the world's largest uh, proprietary royalty database that we've built. And three, uh, investors today are getting into the ground floor. Um, we've got exponential revenue growth uh, expected from our existing 47 royalties um, and a huge amount of really attractive and well-priced deals coming up as well. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.